Ask Aubrey is supported by Eliza and Wild. Eliza and Wild creates all-natural, high-potency CBD products designed to give you targeted, everyday self-care inside and out. Their ingestible and topical CBD products are consciously designed with all-natural and intentionally sourced ingredients and fully recyclable packaging. So it's good for you and for the earth. And y'all, Eliza and Wild literally does not have a single product that I don't love. I have them all. And everything smells and tastes incredible and is made with ingredients that I can feel good about putting on and in my body. I take the CBD and MCT oil drops daily, and they help me to really keep my anxiety and my tension under control. And they also have a line of amazing CBD topical products, including this lip balm that I am truly obsessed with. And like, did you know that CBD actually has anti-inflammatory properties when you apply it directly to your skin? Because I didn't until I started to use this lip balm and it is changing my life. And also it smells amazing, which we all know is really important. And I know that you're going to love these products just as much as I do. So when you grab yours at elizaandwild.com, you can use the promo code Aubrey15 at checkout for 15% off your order. That's elizaandwild.com, E-L-I-Z-A-A-N-D-W-Y-L-D.com. And make sure to use code Aubrey15, that's A-U-B-R-E-E-1-5, for 15% off. Hey there, my name is Aubrey Henderson. I'm a self-worth coach and professional calm in the chaos. I believe that when you're feeling stuck in your life and you can't decide on the next right step, that getting some perspective or a pep talk from someone outside of your shoes can be an absolute game changer. This podcast is that pep talk. Every week, I'll share my responses to listener questions, real life coaching sessions, and interviews about topics that you can connect with and learn from. All things that will help you to reconnect with your own self-worth and inner goodness and vision for your life so you can feel great and get shit done. Welcome to Ask Aubrey. I'm so glad you're here. Hey babes, welcome to this week's episode. I want to talk about something this week that is uncomfortable for a lot of us. It's something that can make us sweat, make us anxious, that we associate with loss and with pain and with rejection, something that honestly many of us will avoid at all costs. We're going to talk about conflict. And, you know, this is actually one of my very favorite things to talk about, despite being a recovering people pleaser myself and really having that internal urge for harmony and for everyone to feel happy all the time and especially happy about interacting with me all the time, um, I've come to really love the concept of healthy conflict. And I've talked about it here before on the podcast, um, but I wanted to do a little bit of a deeper dive on this with you all today, in part because I've had a few questions that touch on this over the past few weeks. And so one of those questions asks, How do we even talk with one another about anything, whether it's racism, politics, LGBTQ rights, gender rights, etc., 
when it feels like so much of what's going on is just yelling at one another or yelling into the void. And then the other question, which was a much quicker Instagram message, was, you know, I know that particularly as a person of privilege, I need to be willing to engage in conflict. But how do I get better at it and more comfortable with it when I've always believed that conflict was bad, especially if I was starting it? Okay, so raise your hand if conflict makes you uncomfortable. I love that I'm acting I'm acting like we're in a classroom or a workshop right now and I know that we're not and I can't actually see you raising your hand. And in all likelihood you're listening to this alone and you're like Aubrey what the fuck are you talking about? I'm not going to raise my hand, but I kind of hope that you raised your hand anyway. The point is, if we were in a room together, a lot of us would be raising our hands. A lot of us struggle with this. Okay, conflict is hard. It's hard for a lot of people. And both of these questions, you know, talk about conflict in the context of, you know, talking about human rights or conflict in the context of like having privilege and needing to like utilize that privilege to engage in conversations that are uncomfortable and naming those as conflict. And that is important. And like, I think everything I'm going to say applies to that. And I think it also applies to our interpersonal relationships, right? Where conflict also feels really scary in, and of course that, you know, the first example is interpersonal relationships, but also like any, literally any kind of conflict you're having, whether it's about, you know, systemic racism or whether it's about, you know, an interaction you had with your spouse that's not around systemic racism. An example is failing to come to me right now, but you get what I mean. And, you know, because, you know, folks are specifically asking about, you know, being a person of privilege and needing to get better at conflict as, you know, a responsibility of being a person of privilege. You know, what's interesting to me is that this fear of open conflict is actually one of the defined characteristics of white supremacy culture. And so this comes from a really great resource. Um, it's written by the author's names are Kenneth Jones and Tama Okun. And I will share the link um, to this in the show notes. But, you know, this this article, basically, it outlines the characteristics of white supremacy culture. Um, and, you know, one of them is fear of open conflict. But there are things like perfectionism or, you know, quantity over quality or a sense of urgency, like these broader characteristics that aren't you know, necessarily when we think about white supremacy, a lot of folks think about, you know, overt racism, right? Like the KKK or like lynching or things like that. But, you know, the white supremacy culture is a lot broader than that. It's it's infused really deeply kind of in our day to day. And so I promise you when you read this um, characteristics of white supremacy culture, you're going to probably recognize a ton of things about your life in this, um, you know, no matter who you are, because it's it's kind of infused into every corner of of our culture. But anyway, all that to say, I'll link this in the show notes, but you know, it this article talks about what these characteristics are along with alternatives or they call them antidotes to each of them. Um but you know, the one we're talking about here is this fear of open conflict. And so it basically is saying that in a white supremacy culture, an unwillingness to engage with conflict directly or, you know, an unwillingness to be open to difficult conversations, people raising difficult conversations or asking hard questions, it actually creates this kind of pervasive culture of mistrust and ultimately of silence where we end up, you know, blaming and shaming the people who are brave enough to bring up 
you know, the conflict or ask the hard questions. We blame that person and say like, oh, you've caused conflict instead of actually addressing the issue at hand, the actual root cause of the conflict, what the conflict is about. Um, And so I'll link that article. But, um, you know, wanted to be sure to call that out as, you know, just literally this is just one example of how white supremacy culture permeates literally everything. It's showing up in how we, you know, the way you have conflict with your significant other, the way that you have a conflict that's not even overtly about race or racism or identity is still tied to white supremacy culture. So I wanted to name that. Um, and to speak on a more micro kind of individual level in our relationships, right? We, I mean, a lot of us know why we avoid conflict, right? If I say like, why don't you want to have conflict? You know, what what makes you feel averse to conflict? It's because we don't want to make people mad. We say we want, we just want to keep the peace, We don't want to piss anybody off. We want to keep other people comfortable, right? What's underneath it is like we're afraid of the pain of disconnection if we don't do those things. If we don't, if we don't keep things chill, if we don't keep it peaceful, if we don't maintain harmony, if we challenge somebody, we fear the pain of that disconnection. And then in cases where there are power dynamics at play, whether that's around identity, whether that's around kind of like position, if you're thinking about like being at work or part of an organization where there's like some level of like seniority or authority at play, you know, we might fear blame or even retaliation from another person if we challenge them or if we broach that difficult conversation, which is where the white supremacy culture piece comes in, right? We're blaming the person who's surfacing the issue rather than actually looking at the issue. Um, you know, we're focusing on the person and blaming them. And we might, you know, honestly, with any kind of conflict, we we just might fear that we won't be able to recover from it. That if we bring the conflict up, we're afraid we won't be able to recover. That once we've kind of opened that Pandora's box and we've engaged in that conflict, that this relationship will never be the same. And so we just avoid it. Because ultimately, we really fear that pain of rejection, which if you've been around for a while with me, you know that I think that is what's underneath a lot of things is, you know, a fear of the pain of rejection. And so we think of conflict as something that is disconnecting, right? But what's wild and what I feel like has been a big learning for me in my own journey you know, as I grow and develop as an individual and in my relationships and as a coach, the thing that has been the aha moment for me, right, is that when it's done in a healthy way, when conflict is approached in a healthy way, and I'll talk about what that means, but when we approach conflict in a healthy way, it actually doesn't drive us apart. You know, the disconnection that we're afraid of, the disconnection that we worry that conflict is going to create, that actually doesn't happen when we approach conflict in a healthy way. When we approach conflict in a healthy way, it actually creates deeper intimacy, deeper connection. Healthy conflict is actually a catalyst for that deeper intimacy. And look, I get that if you, you know, if you haven't really experienced a lot of healthy conflict in your life, then you might have a hard time right now even picturing what this looks like. You might be like, yeah, okay, conflict, healthy conflict, what is that? And so, you know, healthy conflict, really, when it boils down to it, does three things. So the first thing that it does is it creates trust. 
healthy conflict creates trust, which makes sense when you think about it. Because, you know, we're afraid of conflict for the reasons I named before, because we think that, you know, we won't see the other side of it, that the person will reject us or abandon us. And we have no reason to believe that they won't, especially if we haven't had conflict with them before. We don't know how they handle it. You know, we're afraid we're going to be rejected. We're afraid that we will be abandoned. And so when we are actually able to get through conflict, when we're able to name an issue and face it and move through it without running away, without blaming somebody, without diminishing the importance of the issue that we're surfacing, right? We create that trust. And we can't create it out of thin air, right? Like there's risk inherent in that, right? But there's we're creating that trust by taking that risk and then giving the opportunity for that trust to be cultivated, for that trust to be earned, right? And then the second thing that healthy conflict does is that it demonstrates commitment. And so what I mean by that is that when we're willing to enter into conflict with somebody, when we can sit together with them in discomfort, okay, we can sit in discomfort without fleeing from the situation, without running away, what we're demonstrating is that we value that person. We value and we are committed to our relationships over our own comfort and complacency, right? That we're able to endure discomfort. You know, we're able to sit with something that is hard, that might feel uncomfortable because it's important and because our relationships and our connection with others matter more than our comfort in that moment. And then, you know, the third thing that healthy conflict does is that it involves personal accountability. So conflict isn't healthy. You know, we've used words already talking about blame and shame, right? It isn't healthy when we're blaming or shaming people. Um, When we're going into it saying it's all this person's fault or, you know, thinking we had no role in it or, you know, we go into it as an attack with the goal of making the other person feel like shit, That's not conflict. And, you know, that's something else entirely. And I think when we're talking about, you know, these like broader systemic issues where, you know, people are refusing to see the role that they're playing in white supremacy or they're, you know, they're doing real harm with their views. Some of what we're talking about goes beyond a place, right, of conflict. And so when we're talking about healthy conflict, and that's not to say there is not a place for, you know, having some choice words for somebody when they have hateful views or when they they make it clear that they are not open to hearing another perspective, that's a different story and not exactly what I'm talking about. We can't really engage in healthy conflict if the other party is not willing to engage in healthy conflict. It involves mutuality. So all of this to say, if we go into a conversation with the goal of making the other person feel shitty, we're not coming at it from a place of personal accountability. We're not coming at it from a collaborative place. And it's that isn't healthy conflict. The way for conflict to be truly healthy is for us to own our part in whatever the issue is, right? It's not making it, this is your fault, this is your fault, you did this. It's owning our part and getting really clear over what we have control over, what we had control over past tense, what we have control over right now and in the future, getting really clear on what that is. And then for the rest of it, the best we can really do is just seek to name our experience, name what we need. 
So being really clear on our own ownership in the situation and, you know, what we need out of this conversation, out of this conflict. And, you know, a way to think about this is that when I've coached people on giving difficult feedback, and this is something that folks really, you know, find coaching to be helpful around this is, you know, because we think about, I bet everybody listening to this can imagine like a piece of feedback they had to give that they just were like spinning their wheels about. They were so nervous about. They just did not want to give the feedback and they knew they needed to. Um, or they, you know, were trying to tell themselves that they didn't need to. But like having a hard feedback conversation, I offer the analogy to my clients of imagining feedback and conflict is, I mean, really hard feedback often is conflict. It's naming that there's a problem, right? Um, naming that there's a challenge. But this analogy of you sitting at a metaphorical table and this is different from you might be sitting at a literal table, but this is this is different. You're sitting at a metaphorical table with the person that you're delivering the feedback to, right? And the problem or the conflict or whatever it is that you're addressing with them is on the table. And so the way we usually think or the way that I've found a ton of people kind of automatically think about conflict or feedback, and I want you to imagine, like if I say you are sitting at a table with someone and you're giving them feedback and the um, problem or the conflict is on the table. Like picture that configuration really quick. Like get a picture in your mind. Most people conceptualize this as you're sitting at the table across from the other person, okay, across from them, looking at them, and that the problem is on the table in the middle. And I don't know what, you know, what visually the problem looks like for you, right? But the problem is on the table in the middle. That you are looking at them through the problem. Or even sometimes we're looking at it such that they are the embodiment of the problem. This is how we're kind of set up to think about conflict. And, you know, what I invite my clients to imagine instead is that they are sitting on the same side of the table as the other person that they're in conflict with. You are next to that person shoulder to shoulder. So reframe that and picture that. Imagine instead that you're sitting next to one another and the problem or the conflict is in front of you and you're looking at it together as something that is in front of you both, something that you're evaluating together, that you're solving together. And I think that metaphor is powerful because, you know, healthy conflict and feedback do not frame the other person as your opponent. You know, I, and I'll say that again, in healthy conflict, the other person is not your opponent. And that's the way we're socialized to think about it. That's why we think about it as like, well, I have to give a person some difficult feedback or I have to have a hard conversation and we're across the table from them. And again, like logistically, I get that sometimes that's how it works. I'm talking about how you're envisioning it, you know, as this is a metaphor. Okay. But we think, we still think about it that way, that we are looking at them, that the problem is something or that, you know, whether we're looking at them as the problem, through the problem, or that the problem is something that's getting between us, right? When instead that mindset shift where you're thinking about, you know, healthy conflict is 
not that they're your opponent, but that you're instead that you're unveiling a problem and you're looking at it together, that you've surfaced something that needs some kind of resolution and you are viewing the other person as a teammate to help you get to that resolution. That other person is going to collaborate with you on that. And it, it might take some work at first in your conflicts with others, right, to get, to get that person to approach it in the same way, to get your own mind right and thinking about it in that way, because we are so socialized to believe that conflict is something to be won. We think about it like if we don't come out on top, if we don't win, that it wasn't successful. But in reality, in healthy conflict, the end goal is not winning. The end goal is connection. And does that, does that mean that it won't be messy along the way? No, of course not. It's going to be a mess. And this is something that, you know, is a huge mindset shift that is difficult. And also when we engage in conflict, it's with other humans. It's going to be even messier. We are one big collective mess. But ultimately, just like anything else that I share with you, this is a practice. This is not something that, you know, you're going to do perfectly, but this is a practice, something that you incorporate over time and that you get better at. It becomes more second nature. And last week, I, you know, I initiated a, a hard conversation with someone who I really care about. And, you know, that conversation actually was really brief. And that's a testament to like the, you know, the trust I have with this person, right? I, I named something that, you know, I surfaced an issue and this person acknowledged their part in it immediately, owned it immediately. We moved through the actual conflict piece really smoothly and quickly, relatively speaking. I mean, it was like a couple of minutes. And still, and this was over text because this is someone I don't live with, um, and we're in a pandemic still. But still, I found myself fighting this urge to apologize to this person for bringing it up in the first place. And this is after it was pr- it was pretty well resolved, I thought. You know, we had we had named the issue. We had both kind of like taken ownership of our part in it, which for me was my my feelings and my experience. And for the other person was like, you know, kind of their words. Um, and we moved through it quickly and it it we didn't end leave it in a bad place. This person didn't make me feel badly. And still, I felt like I should apologize. And what I was doing was like going back to, you know, the beginning of this episode, I was inflicting that fear of open conflict on myself. I was blaming myself for, you know, making things difficult by bringing up something difficult, right? And like literally for hours, I had to resist the impulse to text this person and to literally say, hey, I'm sorry for getting so upset earlier. And y'all, the thing is, I wasn't sorry. I wasn't sorry for being honest or for naming my feelings directly. I wasn't sorry. And this is a person I have, like I said, I have a lot of trust with this person. And this is a person also who's emotionally intelligent and who is warm and compassionate and who wouldn't want me to apologize for having brought this up. Like definitely would have been upset if I'd apologized and said like, why are you apologizing, right? It wasn't, and it wasn't a real apology. 
So when I took a, I, you know, I took a minute and I reflected on, you know, what I was really feeling and needing in that moment, right? Because I, you know, I know that I want to apologize, but I'm like, but no, I don't want to apologize. So like, what, if I go deep, like, what do I actually need right now? And so I asked myself, you know, okay, I have the urge to apologize. If I do apologize for getting upset, what am I hoping that this person's response will be? And what do I want to feel as a result of that response? And when I asked myself that question, it became really clear to me that what I wanted was not for me to apologize. What I wanted was for that person to kind of respond and say, oh my God, you have nothing to be sorry for. Like, I really appreciate you naming this and calling me out on this. I like, I care about you so much. Like, the affirmation was what I wanted, right? What I wanted was emotional connection or reconnection, right? And I think that's what we all want when we come out of conflict because it feels so vulnerable. You know, back to all the things we feel like we're risking in conflict. We feel like we're risking rejection. We feel like we're risking disconnection or abandonment or somebody blaming us or shaming us, right? And so when we come out of that and we come out on the other side, we want to know that we're, we're still okay. We want to know that things are, are okay between us and that other person. And so when we can confirm that, right, when we're able to get through conflict in a compassionate way, in an honest way, and when we do that enough times, when we repeat that enough times that it becomes habit, that we have data points to reference back to, we develop the skills and the tools and the comfort to keep because we know and we trust that we can survive it. And so, y'all, that's why healthy conflict cultivates intimacy. It builds trust. It creates space for accountability. It demonstrates commitment. And ultimately, it fosters connection. And that's why it's so important. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you loved it, please take a second to subscribe on your favorite platform, leave a rating or a review, and take a screenshot and share it on social media or with a friend who needs to hear a message like this one. I love the chance to hear from you and connect with you because it gives me the opportunity to remind you that you are worthy, worthy of wholeness and happiness and just good things. So send me the question or the topic that's keeping you up at night or that you just want to hear more about, you can send me a voice memo at anchor.fm slash Aubrey Henderson. And I can actually include any voice memos that you send me in the show, which I think is pretty rad. Or you can send a good old fashioned written message from my website at aubreyhenderson.com. I'll see you next time, babes.